a young man named Barack Obama. Subsequent to that meeting, he joined the White House on the staff in 2009 as special consul to the president. He was nominated and later served to become the United States Ambassador to Australia, where I met him. Welcome to Pacific Conversation, Jeff Blush. Well, welcome, Ambassador Blush. How are you? I'm doing very well, Professor Blakely. <laughs> <laughs> Little official, but uh, yeah. we were both in those roles. That's right. That's right. And uh, Australia is at the University of Sydney uh, and the U.S. Studies Center, where we had some opportunities to do some good things, I think. Yeah, no, very important work and great research there. Yeah. Um, and I've been, I've, I've been affiliated with the uh, U.S. Studies Center as well and really admire what you've done there. Yeah. So now uh, I want to talk about how in the world does a guy from Oakland become ambassador <laughs> to Australia as a fellow Oaklander? Yeah, no, completely dumb luck and like the Forrest Gump of diplomacy, I think. <laughs> I stumbled into the right room at the right time. I, uh, uh, a number of years ago, I met a, um, uh, met a young law student who my judge wanted to recruit named Barack Obama and um, had... Uh, yeah, the, the judge actually asked him, asked me to see if I could convince him to clerk. And so I called him up and afterward, I remember telling the judge, um, who, who was, you know, well-regarded judge and fed a lot of people to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, that um, this guy, the good news was the most interesting guy I've ever talked to, fabulous, um, but he doesn't want to clerk, so that's the bad news. So the judge uh, uh, grabbed his resume, went into his office said, I'm going to call him, I calls uh, Obama and um, comes back to my office, still holding the resume, he points to him and goes, now this, this is the kind of guy I ought to be hiring. I'm like, you mean instead of me? And he goes, yeah, exactly. Call this <laughs> guy. Yeah, so I called um, um, uh, then, you know, Barack Obama, and uh, we developed a friendship. I, I never recruited him, but he got very good at recruiting me. And I worked with him as special counsel in the White House. I worked with him on a number of issues. And when um, uh, uh, and when we started to focus on the rebalance to uh, the Asia Pacific, and he was looking for someone who he knew well and who he knew was very interested in Australia and the region, uh, he asked me if I'd be willing to, uh, to take the posting. And, you know, it was a uh, job of a lifetime really wonderful so we've gone right into it you come yeah. to australia uh when you got here the u.s study center had been around about four years but mm -hmm. suspicion among australians toward the united states was still pretty high oh yeah dramatically uh how did you find Australia when you got here and what did you feel you had to overcome? Well, you know, I found, I found Australia extraordinarily welcoming and it reminded, yeah, it reminded me of what I like to think of as, you know, America at, at our very best. Um, optimistic, welcoming, um, uh, you know, take our work seriously, but don't take ourselves too seriously uh, and really committed to doing good in the world. And I think 
you know, I felt that I felt that kinship from the beginning. But as you said, we had just come out of the global financial crisis, as well as um, a, uh, uh, a, a, you know, failing war in Iraq, which was, you know, misconceived. And I think there was a general sense among particularly younger Australians that uh, although the United States may have been a wonderful champion and ally for their parents, um, their sense of our economic leadership was a financial crisis and their sense of our um, security leadership was um, the Iraq war, which many of them opposed. And so based upon that, um, I felt I had a lot of work to do to, to sort of rebuild the sense of confidence and trust that had been the hallmark of this relationship uh, for a new generation um, and to reinforce it as well among uh, others who had been longtime fans of the U.S., but were starting to doubt our focus. How did you start that? What, what were some things you did? I did a few of them with you, but give me an idea of the range. <laughs> well, um, a few of the things were just being um, direct and honest about uh, what had happened and where we were and what we were trying to accomplish in the world. Uh, you know, people's memories tend to be short and they only remember the last few years. So trying to put what, uh, what the U.S. and Australia lives had accomplished um, in context, I think helps. But also just being willing to acknowledge mistakes. So I did some things that other ambassadors, I think, <laughs> uh, uh, either would have been reluctant to do or, you know, didn't have um, uh, enough um, uh, courage by their public affairs group to let them do. But I know I went on Q&A, which is mm -hmm. for a diplomat, um, a pretty frightening uh, system because diplomats generally say very little and you can't get away with that. You know, so on the, the stage, it's a live show. You can be asked questions by anyone on the panel, by the moderator, all very great people. From people in the audience, you can even have you know a video pop up and, and someone who is virulently um, anti-American could ask whatever question you want. So, um, but I, I felt very confident with President Obama's leadership. And I also felt confident that if you're saying things that you truly believe uh, and you're willing to level with people, they may not always agree with you, but they'll appreciate um, the, the candor and they'll appreciate the fact that you're genuine. One of the things that you did, you traveled the country extensively, talking to business people and others, Few ambassadors have done that before or since. No, so that's 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 nice to to, to recognize. I um, that was also a big part of it, which is um, rather than telling people how things ought to be, it's much better to sort of learn how they are um, and then work together on you know our, our combined aspirations. So I. Uh, I really wanted to get to know Australia in a much deeper way than I had before. I'd been to Australia before. I'd loved Australia, but um, I hadn't been to, you know, every part of it. And so oh, I, I, I think the best measure of, of that approach was as I was leaving, they have this ceremony where they, you know, listed all the, you know, all the events we'd attended and hosted and all the uh, treaties we'd signed and all the blogs I'd posted and, you know, sort of all these statistics. But the one that stood out in my mind, which was that of the 198 weeks or 100, you know, is that right? Yeah, 198 weeks that I had been in Australia, 
the total number where I had spent the entire week in Canberra was two. <laughs> <laughs> and I can believe it. You popped up all over the place. As a matter of fact, your name's still here on a program with South Australia, University of South Australia, right? Um, yes, like the Flinders University. Flinders the, University. Flinders, in South the, yeah, there's the Jeff Bly Center on the um, uh, U.S. Alliance Studies in Digital Technology, Security, and Governance, um, and, which has really been my focus. And that's where I want to go now. Your yeah. focus when you were here, digital technology. What were some of the other focuses you had in the region and in the nation? Well, you know, as I said, part of part of my focus had been that uh, the Asia Pacific, I think, had been a little bit underweight in terms of U.S. commitment there. Now we 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 were present, but uh, it had become the most dynamic, um, most productive. Uh, one of the fastest growing economically, but also, you know, one of the more complicated regions in the world. It really felt like the United States needed to be there. So the rebalance was a principal part of the focus. Um, and that had both, um, you know, economic and it had um, diplomatic and it had, um, you know, national security elements to it. So the- talk, talk about the Chinese and where were they at the time? You know, South, uh, uh, Oh, Asia, uh, South China Sea is a big deal now. Yeah. Uh, what was it back in your day? Th those kind of issues with China and kind of the big dogs in the Pacific, Japan, et cetera. Who were the people you were focused on? Yeah, no, that was actually a very it, it, It's a very interesting time. I was fortunate to be there during a period of real transition. Um, you know, President Hu was very different from President Xi. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, during the during the um, uh, who leadership, we had a sense that there were multiple paths that China was contemplating. One was more hegemonic in nature, mm -hmm. which was they, they they weren't going to invade other countries, but they did want to have a dominance over the region um, through economic and other means. Um, but there were also, you know, voices that said, you know, just um, allow China to continue to rise, um, stay relatively self-contained. And there are others that said, you know, if we continue the rise that we have, uh, we can't limit ourselves to um, asserting power in the region. We really need to become responsible state actors. Um, for the whole world, because there are only a handful of superpowers. And if they rose to that level, they would need to do a lot of the things that the United States had done in terms of trying to maintain peace and, and stability around the world. Um, because, you know, and, and when you're when you're sort of the top dogs, it's, it's not only your responsibility, but it's to your advantage to have a stable world that isn't dislocating a, an order which is you know, keeping you, um, keeping you strong. Did you find them partners or, uh, because it's tense now. Yeah. And that was it. There was, there, there was this period of time where I thought there was, um, um, you know, different paths and we were trying to, um, shape, influence, nudge. And some of the things that were part of this rebalance were designed to accomplish that. So really three things, the diplomatic things, um, you know, we, we signed the Treaty of um, Cooperation and Amity uh, to become part of ASEAN. 
uh, we we joined the East Asia Summit and made it a you know a a principles level summit where the president himself would attend. Um, we developed the Indian Ocean um, Rim Initiative that sort of connected um, you know South Asia as well. We did a number of diplomatic moves, um, including uh, really reinvigorating APEC, so that there was a comp you know, a, a cohesive, comprehensive set of diplomatic um, um, organizations that would cover any kind of issue, whether it was a security issue or a uh, an economic issue that had all the major powers at the table. Um, and I think you know that was a that was a significant set of moves. The second set of moves were really tying our our allies and partners in the region together. Um, better in terms of our security posture. And so we did a lot of training exercises and really reached out to countries that we hadn't worked with before um, in, in, you know, with that level of intensity. We, we started the trilateral dialogue with Japan, mm -hmm. uh, the US, Australia, and Japan. And the notion behind that, candidly, was that we have such a good relationship with Australia. We work so well with Australia we thought that other partners and allies would benefit from just witnessing um, what a kind of seamless and trusting relationship uh, can accomplish. Uh, we found it was, it, it was very helpful to do these trilaterals and other countries would actually, you know, strengthen our bilateral relationship, having seen how well we worked with Australia. Uh, and we, we did some additional things in particular, you know, um, um, rotational training of Marines in Northern Australia um, and some um, uh, airfield dispersing, of which I think also gave us a, um, a stronger posture in the region, a greater sense of our commitment. And then the last thing we focused on was economically, how we could become more integrated. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership was really a, an effort uh, that we championed to, with Australia, um, to pull together a large block of uh, similarly interested countries to, um, you know, to, to not necessarily create a counterweight to China, but to create a trading block that was so significant that China would want to be part of it and would look for a rules-based order that would give it the opportunity to, to participate. That's and interesting. Those were, yeah. Because so that was the plan, and that's how we hope to shape the relationship with China at that time. Yeah, but uh, boy, that's foreign language now. Yeah, well, a number of things happened. Um, in the, in, you know, with the rise of uh, President Xi, we, we saw, a, you know, a more, a more nationalistic approach and, and, and a trend, um, not necessarily a full-on commitment at that point, but a trend towards uh, some of the things that we had been concerned about, a more hegemonic approach. And I think, uh, you know, there had been a, you know, a, a, a very effective summit between um, President Obama and President Xi in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, Sunnylands in Southern California, where the president essentially said, we know what you're doing. <laughs> and we have a lot of powers to, to make you knock it off. Uh, it's not in your interest to do this to us and it's not in our interest either. Um, for us to not be partners. Um, but there was a, I, th I think there was a real sense of American resolve and American recognition 
of China's change in approach and ambitions. Um, you know, and there had been a number of things they did, you know, the dust up with the Senkaku Islands and the cutting off of rare earths. And there had been, um, you know, some maneuvers in the South China Sea, cutting, um, you know, telecommunications cables and, and um, threatening Vietnamese fishing boats. I mean, all those were adding up as well as a real, just a, 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 just a, a free-for-all in uh, cyberspace. So based on that, I think we had positioned ourselves well um, for a new and more productive um, relationship with, um, with China. Uh, where, you know, there was mutual, you know, respect, um, but recognition that America was not going to be trifled with uh, and that our allies were just an extraordinary bulwark against um, over-aggressive ambitions. Um, the, you know, this changed pretty dramatically, I think, with the election of President Trump. Yes, it certainly has. Uh, first of all, there was an ambassador for, what, two years? What's that? Oh, yeah, no. So there, there was no there ambassador. Was, yeah. uh, it was really a floating crap game. Even uh, here in Sydney, we had no relationship anymore uh, with the consulate, like the old days. Yeah. Um, there was belligerence, real belligerence uh, mm-hmm. toward China and almost getting Australia to act the same ways. And that some of that is still here. Uh, we need to work that through. I think, this is my view, that uh, punching China in the nose is not the way to get to the future. Well, and well, and also, you know, if you're going to punch someone, um, you know, punch <laughs> them where it matters. Yeah. <laughs> and I heard of yeah, them. Yeah. And, you know, what, what troubled me, there were a few things. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, because I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, bash the, the the Trump administration, but there were some moves initially. Uh, and I was in I was in Beijing at, right after the election and you know was able to really gauge the Chinese reaction. But w- one thing that President Trump did, for example, is you know he unilaterally unsigned the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. Now um, even if that was good politics in the United States and even if you know, you just say, well, politics matters and you need to do it for that reason. Um, he didn't need to do it right away and he didn't need to do it without um, seeking any concessions um, or without repairing some damage with allies. So if he really wanted to maximize that move, what he should have said is, look, you know, <laughs> China has been abusing a lot of trade rules. The thing they're most afraid of is this Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, I, all you do is... is you know, tell China, look, I said that on the campaign trail, but unless you give me the following things, there's no way I'm going to unsign that. We've got you. And he would have gotten major concessions from China. We never would have had to have a trade war. Um, but instead, you know, the person who wrote the art of the deal just gave it away for nothing. And in the meantime, really, um, you know, lost the confidence of, you know, the 12 other nations or the 11 other nations who were, um, um, parties to the TPP, who we had encouraged and, um, and and really put a lot of energy into convincing to join the TPP. So we, we undermined our alliances, which were so critical. Um, we gave up what was a very valuable deal 
and we asked for absolutely nothing in return from China for it. Um, that that's something that China recognized, and they said, you know, we know statecraft. This guy may be good at real estate in New York, but he does not know statecraft. And, well, we uh, have a dangerous situation now here in Australia because it feels like the partnership isn't what was when you were here. And my perception, and I've been here over 20 years, this was always a two-team match. Uh, when we went to China, we didn't forget Australia and vice versa. Yeah. Now, here we are in Australia trying to punch way above our weight without a partner. How do we get the partnership back and working together? Because it's got to be a trans-Pacific partnership, not Australia alone. How do yeah. we No, no, I think, I think that's, you know, look, look, Australia is extraordinarily capable and it defines its own, its own interests. But it, it also understands that um, given just its, well, you know, the, the nice thing about the U.S.-Australia relationship is that the fundamentals of the relationship haven't changed. Um, you know, we still share common values. We still have uh, a, a, a common sense of purpose. Um, I think we have long and deep relations um, that are not just strategic. They're not just, um, you know, uh, transactional. You know, we genuinely like each other. And, that, and, and I think uh, you can see that just in the way, you know, Australians and Americans get along. Um, one of... Australia's strengths in the region has been its ability to get along with lots of countries. And it, it was always something that the United States encouraged because um, there were some times when Australians and Americans agreed on the on policy, but if it's said by an American, it's seen as bullying. And, um, and if it's said with an Australian accent, then it's perfectly sensible. <laughs> so we, we really, you know, enjoyed the fact that Australians were not only our friends, but friends throughout the region. And likewise, I think the the um, you know the U S was a great convening power that brought a number of these relationships together towards a common purpose. Uh, and so it was very advantageous to to Australia to have have that American um, influence in the region. And um, and when we worked together, it wasn't, as I said, just transactional. We really enjoyed it. And we were accomplishing things that we both thought were, were, were positive for the world. And that, that hasn't gone away. The capacity to do that hasn't gone away. Um, I think one of the challenges for the United States and Australia is going to be to repair some damage, you know, some, some bruised feelings, some um, loss of perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, that can that can happen in in the heat of the last four years, which were very tumultuous years. Um, but I think there's also a lot of work to be done with our partners in the region. And probably the best thing that we could do is instead of worrying too much about, um, you know, uh, um, you know, talking through our feelings, mm -hmm. um, it's to get out there and do the work together with other countries and bring them on board. I think uh, Australians and Americans we we, we tend to do better when we're um, busy doing a project together than yeah. when we're just trying to talk. And so I think working with other countries would be the, the, 
next and most important first step? Yeah, I, I just see too much bilateral stuff going on from my point of view. We've got Korea and Japan and Indonesia and all of us talking the same language, walking the same walk and behaving like we have a partnership. Yeah, look, I, I, I thought one of the great um, moves of the Biden administration in terms of its foreign policy already is, you know, within its first 75 days in office, um, when, you know, they still don't even have all the lights on in the White House and lots of posts are still unfilled. Uh, one of the first things they did was this uh, quad, you know, quadrilateral meeting mm -hmm. with the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. I think that was a real, you know, demonstration of commitment to the region and a desire to engage India even more deeply in these uh, areas of common interest for Western democracies or any form of democracy. Right. Um, it's, you know, that that's really been the challenge is that democracies sort of forget that with these new technologies, we are much more vulnerable. Whatever differences we, we may have, we're bound by vulnerability um, to misuse of these technologies that threatens the very principle of self-determination and, um, and self-governance. Yeah, so putting it all back together, there are a couple of things that concern me. One, the talent pool. I was in state, as you probably know. State yeah. is a place where you develop talent uh, deliberately. Mm -hmm. And we lost a lot of that talent in just four years. Uh, the second is this anti-Asian thing in the United States is creeping to Australia. Uh, you know, I never thought that could happen here in Australia. Didn't even occur to me. Now, some of this is a pandemic, but it's ugly. How do we get back to uh, the president's doing a great job. I think Joe's doing a great job. But we still don't have a culture that is doing a great job. How do we get that culture back, Jeff? Do you and I have yeah. to go on the road again? Those are three tough questions. I think, first, I, you know, the Foreign Service is not as hollowed out as I think people worried. A okay. lot of folks just hung in there and had had... Uh, President Trump been reelected, I think a lot of people would have left the Foreign Service, but there were quite a few who didn't agree with his approach to foreign relations, um, but felt it was their duty, their responsibility to hang in there. Um, and I saw that also in the intelligence services and other um, other groups that focus very, very much on foreign policy. And so there there was damage done. Um, I'm, I'm not, not, not suggesting there wasn't, but I, it, it's reparable. Um, I think the 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 anti Asian um, rhetoric um, and and how it has infected public discourse and led to these horrific attacks on on Asian Pacific Islanders um, in in the U.S. and other places around the world, even here in um, Australia. Just, yeah, it's you know it's it's disgraceful and it's not who we are um, and. I think the the fact that the President of the United States has come out so strongly against it. I mean, after the shootings in Atlanta, you know, he immediately lowered the flag to half staff in um, over the White House. Uh, and this this is a this is a statement by the president that 
that this is not who we are and that he's going to make this a priority. Um, you know, again, I'm a great lover of technology and I work in the technology industry. Um, but I also understand that any tool um, uh, can do good and it can do harm depending on who wields it and for what purpose. So technology uh, in the wrong hands, you know, just, like a, just like a hammer you know, can build a house or break a skull, technology can either solve a problem or it can create a new and massive one. And I think our culture has, um, has suffered to some extent because of the way we've used technology. Um, it's, it's become coarser. Uh, it's become more, um, uh, you know, more isolated in, in, in interesting ways uh, and combative. And I think as a result, um, uh, uh, people have started to become a little tribal online and yeah. they look for the information that reinforces their biases. They don't know what information to trust. They don't you know, know what's a reliable source of knowledge. And uh, as a result, it's made it very difficult for us to, to speak civilly to each other and to find areas for compromise and, and common, um, common good. And that, I think, is one of the big challenges for us. If we're going to repair our, uh, repair our culture and repair our democracies, um, it's going to begin to some extent with getting a better handle on how we communicate through these, these new means, these new technologies, um, so that we, we can trust facts again. Because without facts, we just don't have a common language. Yeah, that's why I try to move beyond the news and talk exactly. to people like you. And I'm trying to get this, it's called the dialogue across the Pacific. Uh, we have to start talking together and trusting one another and getting the information from the horse's mouth. Thus, I'm talking to you, uh, Kim Beasley, Carr, and many others who have been there and walked the walk. Uh, we cannot hope to dispel all these rumors unless we have people who speak the truth. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when you interview, you know, Ambassador Beasley, now Governor Beasley, or, um, you know, former Foreign Minister Carr, or former Senator Carr, um, it, one of the things that stands out about both of them is that they were both, and are both great students of history. Yes. Uh, and and I, I, I try and keep up with history and, the reason is it's very hard to contextualize events today unless you, you know, can see how, how they resemble uh, things that happened in the past and what we did in the past and how we came out of similar uh, difficult situations, how we unstuck ourselves. The, the kind of technological revolution that we're experiencing now is you know, in many ways almost identical to one we had 100 years ago. Uh, and a lot of the same things happened in terms of a rise of xenophobia and um, anti-immigrant uh, um, violence. There was a, you know, a great balkanization of wealth between the, the, the very wealthy and everyone else. There was a, um, you know, a, a, a um, you know, the development of yellow journalism and a, and a weakening of critical institutions, whether it was corruption in government or, um, you know, a, a lack of confidence in stories coming through the media. Uh, and there were, you know, we had to fundamentally change our education system. There are all these things that happened during that time that we're experiencing now. 
Um, and they made it through, haltingly difficult you know, as it was. They made it through, and, and you know, the U.S. and Australia emerged as uh, two of the greatest countries in the world um, out of that period. We're going through one of those periods again, and looking back through history, it gives you a sense of optimism because you know it can be done. It also gives you a perspective on what you shouldn't do um, and you know, mistakes we shouldn't repeat. Uh, and a few pathways. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, and this conversation is an illustration of what you just talked about. I'm trying to use the device we have right now, a piece of technology, to spread the truth. Yes. Uh, and each of us tries to do the same thing. We'll have a truer, better or just society. Uh, you can't give it up because you pass your 80th birthday. It doesn't mean you're dead. <laughs> uh, and if Joe's going to go, I'm going to go too. He's stepping, you know, he's moving. And uh, I hope to be with you again in some forums so we can speak the truth and make the United States, help the United States become what it needs to be. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I love the idea of um, seeing you again in person without any masks on and, um, and being able to share a good glass of Australian wine together. I also love the idea of um, the fact that people of um, all ages um, and, and all perspectives um, using our technology for good uh, to share truth and to you know, help, um, help repair the things that have broken and to build upon the things that have always remained strong between our countries. So, and um, conversations, doing that. yeah, and conversations like that get in the classrooms. I'm hoping uh, some of our work, what our conversation is a great conversation for a follow up in a class in civics. Oh, uh, well, anytime, you know, you, <laughs> you name the place, I'm there for you. Um, oh, thank you, mate. Uh, it's been really terrific. And next time in Oakland. Yes, inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> Ciao. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. More Pacific Conversations coming out every fortnight. Subscribe wherever you find the podcast to make sure you don't miss out. And for more, check out edtalks.com.au. And for weekly U.S. news and current affairs, check out Ed's other podcast, U.S. of Ed, with myself, Sean Britton. Available wherever you find good podcasts, as well as on Facebook and Twitter.